I had thought I was not going to discuss Matthew chapter 5, the part where Jesus talks about the law, but I think I will. I think it's important for us to, to get some things straight here about this whole issue about the kingdom and law. There's much confusion in our day about the place of law in the life of the Christian. So I, I think Jesus clarified some things here that we need to understand. And then I want to talk about anger, uh, what Jesus says about how we deal with anger. And I hope we have time for all of that tonight. Uh, many read Romans 10:3. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And they read that and they say, oh, Christ put an end to the law. We don't need to worry about it. And we actually had a song in the church hymnal. Those of you who uh, grew up with the church hymnal remember that song. Free from the law, a happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall. Grace hath redeemed us once for all. That's not in my hymnal, by the way. And then it goes on to say, come and he saves us once for all. Blessed salvation once for all. And you just sing this over and over again. Once for all, it's all accomplished, it's all done. I don't know how that ever got in the hymnal. Uh, is that good theology? <laughs> well, it's based on Hebrews chapter 10, and referring to the sacrifice of Christ, it says, by which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. It means Christ was offered once. It didn't have to be a sacrifice that was repeated. But the song gives the idea that... Uh, once we're saved, that's it. It takes care of everything. At least that's the way people tend to interpret it. All right. Well, I'd like for you to turn to Romans 8 and uh, just take a look there at that passage. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> there is now, therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Okay? So it's a law that, uh, uh, the law that kept us in bondage to sin that we're free from, according to that passage. For what the law could not do in that it was weak to the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And this is the important verse, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So that makes it pretty clear that the whole purpose of Christ's sacrifice was so that we could fulfill the righteousness of the law. The law was intended to uh, accomplish righteousness in our lives. All right? <clears throat> the law was a means to an end. But the problem with the Jewish people is they stopped with the letter of the law and they didn't follow through to the end. Now, some of them did. People like David, people like Daniel, people like... Uh, the, the prophets, they, they, followed all, they, they allowed the law to lead them to a genuine righteousness, all right? The law was intended to cause people to live in a right relationship with God and each other. That was the purpose of the law. But the Jews lost sight of that. Now I want to tell you what they did with it. The Scrabble law was oral for three centuries. It was not written down. Then the Mishnah was written down. The oral law was written down. It was a summary of the oral law uh, written down, 800 pages. So you see what happened. It, it multiplied pretty greatly until they got it written down. And then, of course, the Mishnah was not good enough, so you had to have a commentary on the Mishnah, and that was the Talmud. That was 12 volumes in, in the Jerusalem Talmud, and by the time it was 
translated and republished or redone in Babylon, it, by the time of Jesus, it had grown to 60 volumes. <laughs> and, and the people who lived under all of that and heard all of that expounded and, and, and how they were supposed to relate to it, they realized that there was something wrong. The lack of reality was obvious, and we could talk about some of those laws. They were actually ridiculous. You could go a Sabbath day's journey, uh, and a Sabbath day's journey was uh, you could go and you could eat, and then you could go as much further as you could go, but then you couldn't eat again. You had to come back. Uh, and so what they would do is they would take various lunches along so they could keep going. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff was in that, was in that law. Jesus' audience noted that the teaching he was giving had a realistic note about it, about God, about man, about sin, about life. And so there was a question. (laughs) The same question comes up today. Is he a liberal or is he a conservative? (laughs) And both sides were listening eagerly to hear what he had to say about the law. What would you say? Would you say Jesus, in relation to the law, was a liberal or was a conservative? Well, they thought he was a liberal because of what he did about the Sabbath and what he did about washing hands, and there's things like that. They, 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 there was a real question as to where he, was, where he stood with the law. From what he said, what would you say, Brother Nathan? Was he a liberal or a conservative? conservative. He was a conservative. He came out very clearly on the side of the law. He said, now you have to understand, I don't think he's talking here about the Mosaic law. The Bible, uh, uh, Paul said the, the Mosaic law was added because of transgression. Uh, God really, his will would have been if everybody had lived according to the law as Abraham would have or Joseph would have. Uh, and he says that law was wrapped up in the universe. And he said, that won't pass away till the universe passes away. So if you're going to sin against the law of the universe, you're going to suffer the consequences of a, of a collision with the universe. <laughs> and so he says, no, no. He said, I couldn't get rid of the law if I wanted to. It's going to be here until the creation passes away. He said, the law, which is the divine ordering of life, which God created, he ordered the creation and he ordered a moral law for us to live by. And the prophets, which was a call to obey that divine ordering of life, okay? It's interesting how many times in the Old Testament people are called to obey this law of Moses, and it says, obey all of it. I went through my Bible one time when I was reading it, and all the times in the Old Testament were emphasized obeying all the law, I I underlined all, (laughs) that it may be well with you. The law was intended for our well-being. The picture I have is because people wouldn't follow God the way Abraham did. God had to treat them like children. It had to give them a schoolmaster. Do this, do that, do this, do that. And so that's the Mosaic law. And it's not by any means complete, uh, but it's enough that uh, they could get the point if they wanted to. All right. The law is necessary that it may be well with you. And I I, I referred the other night to the fact that even in terms of of our physical well-being, There was a law against eating fat. God was looking out for their cardiovascular health. There was a law about the water purification, which was soap 3,000 years ahead of time. God was uh, looking out with the quarantine to help them to deal with infectious diseases that they knew nothing about, and they knew nothing about soap, and they knew nothing about cardiovascular disease. You know, it's interesting. I tell people 
The Bible is God telling us what we would do if we knew everything he knows. <laughs> He's giving us wisdom by commands. If, if he were to give us wisdom by information, we would be reading all our lives, uh, Brother Milo, and we wouldn't get very far. But he said, look, I, they don't have time for that. I'm not sure they'd even understand it. So I'll just tell them what they would do if they knew what I know, Okay. <laughs> That's what the law is. God mercifully telling us how, I tell people this is a handbook. You know, you buy a piece of equipment and you get a handbook and it tells you how to use it wisely. It tells you how not to use it. That's what this is. God said, look, I created this universe. I created man. I'm just going to tell him right up front how this is to be done, how it's to be used so it may be well with him. Okay. So that's what it is. And so we have things in here like command to sing. Did you know singing is not an option? Singing is a command. It says sing unto the Lord. Sing unto the Lord. Dozens of times. Well, why does he tell us to sing? Suppose you don't feel like singing. Well, then you have to do it by command. And the reason he wants you to do it by command is because it, so it may be well with you. <laughs> and when you don't feel like singing, that's probably when you need to sing. <laughs> the children of Israel were down there in Babylon and uh, they ask him for a song, and they say, how can we sing a song? They hung their harps on the willows, and, and that's when they should have sung. It would have reminded them of God's faithfulness. It would have reminded them of God's will. It would have reminded them of all kinds of things that they needed to be reminded of. And so I think we, when we don't feel like singing, God says, look, I'm, I'm going to give them a command because I dwell in the praises of my people, and I want them to enjoy that presence, and, and it's by singing that they're going to uh, experience that. And so I'm going to give them a command that they're supposed to sing. I'm just giving you an example. We have a command not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. There are a lot of people in this world who say, I don't need the church. I don't need fellowship. I can go out on the mountain and worship God by myself. They need a command to help them understand what they really need to do, to be reminded and to be... Uh, told uh, that this, this, is, this is what you need to do. Man needs law. Our wills are lazy. I have people sometimes who wrong me. And I have to remember that Jesus said I'm to forgive them, or I'm not sure I would as soon or as thoroughly as I should. I need that reminder. I mean, I know it, but I need, I need somebody to say, this is what you have to do. I need that. I have a lazy will, like all humans do. And then we rationalize. We are clever at making things we want to do be right, even though down deep inside we know they're not right. I remember a, a famous evangelist, and I could tell you his name, and I think you'd all recognize it, who built a $7 million mansion on top of a hill by a lake. And even his fellow pastors questioned him. And he said, well, I need that uh, a large facility because I am the oldest in the family, and I'm expected to have a place to uh, entertain my extended family. So they went and checked on his extended family. It was a total seven people. See, that's what we do. That's what we do. We rationalize. We are masters at rationalizing our behavior. And we need law to call us up short. Okay? As I told you last night, we very quickly mistake our emotional impulses for the leading of God's Holy Spirit. And David knew he needed a law. He said, oh, God, how love I thy law. It's my meditation all the day. In fact, your statutes have been my songs. David, did you ever think about it? David put God's law into song. 
David said, I want to sing God's law. I love it so much, and it's so important to me, I'm going to make it into song. <laughs> so I'm just trying to show you why, why we need law. Now, Jesus is about to give, and we're going to study one of them tonight. He's about to give the most stringent laws that anybody ever gave. Okay? Laws against anger. Impossible laws against anger. Against lust against dishonesty, against retaliation, against accumulation of wealth. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. That's the chapter that says we need to abide in him, and it's telling us how to do it, by keeping his commandments. Even as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he goes on to say why. He said, I've said these things unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Laws check the tendency to lawlessness. We all have a tendency to lawlessness. Could I have a raise of hands? Is there anybody here that doesn't have a tendency to lawlessness? Well, you're afraid to say so. (laughs) I do. All right? And license from the established order is not freedom. It's not freedom to take license from the established order. I often have illustrated this way. This is a pond, and this is a little fish swimming around in this pond. And after all, that fish says, you know what? This is pretty confining. I'm made for bigger things. I need need to get out into the larger uh, uh, environment. I, I need a larger scope for my existence. So he gives himself one big flip, and there he is. Freedom, freedom, what is it? Death. That little fish could have been as happy as could be the rest of his life in that pond. It might not have been as large as he would have wanted it to be, but he could have been happy. It would have been a, a perfect environment. All right. <clears throat> Jesus said, if you break the least command, I want you to turn, by the way, the Jews had figured out which one that was. Did you know that? Turn to Deuteronomy 22, verse 6. The Jews had it all figured out. They knew (laughs) which ones were the most important and which ones weren't and how you should regard it all. But this this comes from Jewish um, sources. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 6 and 7 reads like this. If a bird's nest chance to be before thee in the way in any tree or on the ground, whether they be young ones or eggs, and the dam sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, thou shalt not take the dam with the young, but thou shalt in no wise, in any wise, take, let, I'm sorry, but thou shalt in any wise let the dam go and take the young to thee, that it may be well with thee. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, ask the ecologists. The ecologists today would say that that, that's pretty farsighted there. Because if you take the dam, there'll be no more eggs. And the little ones, by the time they grow up, who knows what might happen to them. So it's ecologically wise to take the young, but not the dam, to let her have another gestation. 
and, and produce more, more birds. Is that an important command? I don't know. The Jews considered it the least important, but it says that it may be well with you. That insignificant little command that it may be well with you. Now, I referred to a scripture last night, and I didn't have the reference, but I'm going to have you turn to it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 15, says this. The ancient and honorable, he is the head. And the prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. So if you want to know what the bottom person on the rung of society is, like I told you last night, it's not the murderer. It's not the serial rapist. Those are horrible sins. It's the prophet that teaches lies. The prophet that tells people something other than the order that God has created us to experience. All right. And it's like I told you last night, a serial murderer can murder a lot of people, and that's bad. A serial rapist can do a lot of harm, and that's bad. But a false prophet can lead a whole community to destruction. And this is serious. And Jesus is making it very clear that he's on the side of the law that God has established. And he's telling us that those with the keenest sensitivity to the moral law are the greatest. People who are concerned about God's order. And they might not understand it perfectly, but that is a very great concern of those, that we get things in order the way God wants them to be. He said, that person is honorable. Okay? And he also talks about doing and teaching. You know, people who do, who teach wrong things are usually doing wrong things before they teach them. They're usually making a way for themselves. In fact, Jesus, when he was baptized, people questioned, why are you doing this? This doesn't seem like something you need to do. And he said, it's becoming for us to fulfill all righteousness. I don't know how important it was for Jesus to be baptized. Maybe it wasn't very important at all. But Jesus did not want to neglect the least thing that was, that was belonged to righteousness. He wanted to form, perform completely what was right. Jesus had a passion to do what was right. Kingdom participants are not blessed by breaking laws. The only genuine freedom is to be in line with all of the laws of the universe that God has created. Okay? Now how? Well, he says at the end of this, by a righteousness that exceeds it goes beyond. And if you have that righteousness that exceeds, if, if you allow what God has told us to be internalized, you will go beyond. <laughs> I mean, back in that chapter we just read, it says, now if you build a house on the roof, you should build a battlement around it so that uh, you don't cause anybody any trouble. Now, do you think you'd have to, if, if you build a house with a flat roof on it, do you think you would need a law to tell you that you should put a, a, a fence around the, the top of your house that people are going to go up there so nobody falls off? Or do you think you'd have to be told that if you borrowed your neighbor's ox and somehow you were careless and that ox died, that you should make restitution? And see, those are all in the law. But if you have the law of Christ in your heart, you go beyond. You, you, you have the spirit of making those things right and dealing with those things. That's what Jesus said. Now, I, I want to conclude by taking a look at Colossians. So turn to Colossians chapter 2. This is the one that throws everybody for a loop. 
Colossians chapter 1. I'm sorry, it's Colossians chapter 2. Verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Let's stop right there. That verse is describing the Gnostics who believed you had to go through a whole chain of angels to get back up to the true God from the false God that created this universe and everything in it is evil. And they had a very specific way that you had to make that contact or you would fail. Okay? So this is addressing Gnostics and Jews. Let's continue reading here. Not holding the head from which all the body but joints and bands having nourishment ministered knit together increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world... Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men? And that really throws people for a loop. But what Paul is saying is, the Gnostics said, there are certain things you have to do the way we tell you to do them, or you cannot have any relationship with God. The Jews said the same thing. Now, if Paul is talking about the kind of applications we talk about, then he violated them himself. Paul told the women not to wear pearls, not to wear gold, not to plait their hair, not to do the putting on of apparel. Those are, they sound like church standards to me. And Peter said the same thing. So if Paul meant, if that's what he meant here, he violated his own principle by giving them specific applications. I don't think this is what Paul meant. I think Paul meant something like saying, if you're not baptized in a certain way, you're lost. I think that's what Paul was talking about. He was talking about people who made those kinds of absolute applications. Not only was the principle absolute, but they made an absolute application. And he says, don't let anybody put that on you. And we don't. At least the better thinking of us don't. We say this is our standard for our time and for our place. We feel this is the best way to practice a certain principle. We don't say that the German Baptists have to do it the way we do it. We don't say that the Church of the Brethren have to do it the way we do it. We don't say the Amish have to do it the way we do it, or they're lost. That's what Paul's talking about. Don't let anybody put that that kind of a, a whammy on you, an absolute application. The principles are absolute, but we have always held the applications to be relative to time and place. But we insist that the principles are absolute and they must have an application. We do insist on that. Now, I'm going to give, I'm going to say this. I think one of the things that has gotten us into trouble is the idea that we have to have a scripture for everything. We're scriptural. We have verses for everything that we do. I think, I think that was something the fundamentalists put on us. And so then we get into trouble. But I'm going to give you a, a scenario. Suppose when the cars came out, people would have realized what we now realize, that the cars scattered our communities hither and yon. Before we had cars, people didn't live far away from the church and come an hour or a half hour to church. You had a closer community, okay? And so I don't know if when they got cars, they thought about that, but somebody may have thought about that. Well, you know, if we get cars, it's going to scatter our community. Well, the only way they could have kept that from happening 
How many think that would be good if we all lived in close, we actually lived closer to each other? How many think that would be a good thing? Well, you don't think it would. Okay, I do. All right. I'd love to live so close to you, I could just walk across the lawn and talk to you anytime. We could get together and pray without getting in our cars. We could have fellowship meals together in our little community uh, anytime we wanted to. I think that would just be great. Uh, in the early church, I think they did. But suppose somebody said, the car is going to destroy that. How could you have kept that from happening? You'd have had to have required some things. Required the use of the car in a certain way or required not to have any car. Something. You'd have had, done, you'd have had to have established some way of bringing people to do that together so that that didn't happen. Can you think of a verse, Milo, we could use to make that happen? There's no verse. Now, we could say fellowship. You know, we, we could do, sort of generally get some ideas that would help us have better fellowship. Acts 2 and 4, yeah, <laughs> yeah the Hutterites do. <laughs> I'm just trying to show you there are some things that we value that there's not necessarily a scripture for, but it's a very wholesome thing that we value that we would like to keep. And I don't think there has to be a verse for all the things that we value. We value a four-part singing so we don't have a piano. I could not make a biblical case against the piano. I'd make a fool of myself if I tried to. But I can give you a good practical reason, and I would stand, I'd, I'd, I'd be pretty upset if somebody brought a flute into this church to accompany our singing or any instrument. I can't give you any reason why in our church we have separate seating. I mean, they're just, they're just some things that, they're just part of a, a wholesome uh, practice that, that does us good. <laughs> and so this idea that there has to be a verse for everything and that there are absolute practices that everybody has to do the way we do it, I think that's what Paul, Paul is talking about, the latter that I just mentioned to you. And so <clears throat> I, I just want us to understand that Jesus is on the side of law and order and things that help people to obey God and get their life in line with what he wants us to do. Does anybody have any questions on that? That's a controversial subject, of course. I agree with your last conclusion. What was it? You said that anything that can help us do things in law and order. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we have to get away from this thing that unless we have a verse, just take what Paul gave. He said platted hair. We don't do that. That's already become obsolete. I don't know what he was talking about, but whatever he was talking about, we don't, it doesn't apply to us. If the Bible had given us everything in detail that we were supposed to do, it would be totally out of date. It would be all stuff that was done in Jesus' time or in Paul's time. And so God very wisely gave us absolute principles, and I think by Paul showed us that he expects us to make some specific applications. I mean, according to Paul, I guess you can wear silver and you can wear... A platinum, and you can wear diamonds, by all means, uh, and rubies. <laughs> I mean, they're not on the list. <laughs> I just think this whole thing, uh, I, you know what I have a sneaking suspicion of? The people who try to make these arguments are trying to make a way for themselves. Now, I, I may be wrong, but I'm just, uh, that's my, if you watch what happens after all, all their arguments are done, you sort of get that impression. All right, now, that might not have been as edifying as you would have liked, so let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. 
I'd just like to set the record straight. I'm, I'm with Jesus. I'm on the side of law and order. I want to fulfill all righteousness. I want to have ways of doing things that completely fulfill God's purpose in the principles that he gave us to the extent that I can. And the title of the message tonight, the, the second part, is Eliminating Our Enemies. In the spring of 1894, the Baltimore Orioles came to Boston to play a routine baseball game, but what happened that day was anything but routine. The Orioles' John McGraw got into a fight with the Boston third baseman. Within minutes, all the players from both teams had joined the brawl. The fight quickly spread to the grandstands. Among the fans, the conflict went from bad to worse, and someone set fire to the stands, and the entire ballpark burned to the ground. Not only that, fire spread and burned down 107 other buildings in Boston, all because two people in a baseball game got into a disagreement. Seneca says, anger is a brief insanity. Cicero said, when anger enters the scene, nothing can be done rightly. Uncontrolled anger is insanity. Anger is the natural response to an injustice or injury, but it is a very dangerous item that we have to handle with care. There's nothing wrong with anger. One of the scriptures says, be angry and sin not. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But it's a, it's, it's a very risky emotion. It was put there so that you have the impetus to make a wrong right, but you have to really be careful how you handle it. All right? The Mosaic Law warned against going to the extreme of eliminating the wrongdoer by killing him. Jesus now tells us how to eliminate our enemies in a new and living way. He takes us to the heart of the Mosaic Law, which is the moral law. I told you the Mosaic law is based on the moral law of the universe, and Jesus is now taking us to that law, the moral law of the universe, which says God intends for us to reverence all human life. That's, that was the whole point of, of the Mosaic law. That's what it was trying to get you to. It was trying to get you to the law of the universe, the moral law of the universe, okay? Rever- reverence is the fountain of the new humanity, In this case, it means reverence for every human being. All of our actions are to be judged by the reverence for every bearer of God's image. Okay? Jesus is taking us back to the warning that God gave to Cain. He was warning him. He said, anger, Cain, anger is dangerous. And you must master it or it will destroy you. All right? God described anger as sin crouching at the door for Cain. And Cain ignored the warning, and you want to know what happens. So I have three points tonight. Silence anger, seek accommodation, and solicit agreement. So let's talk about silencing anger. Let's look at this passage. Verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother, and by the way, without a cause, they will tell you is not in the, some of the better manuscripts. Other people will tell you King James put it in there because he thought he had a cause to be angry with somebody. I don't know how it got in there, but you can take it out probably. All right? I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. So there, the Greek language apparently, and you know this maybe better than I, I do. Well, I don't know it at all. I only know what people tell me. Was a 
sort of a richer language in some ways than, than English. Is that true? And that's why I keep telling you there are several definitions for some of these words. The one definition for anger means a quick blaze like in a, a, a pile of straw. It blazes up hot. That's it. The second meaning is a fire that smolders and smolders and smolders for days and gets hotter and hotter and hotter until finally it, it, it destroys. Okay, those are the two meanings. So that's why it says, and, and, and how does that last one happen? The last one happens because something happens to you and you brood and you brood and you add up more and more and then you suspicion and you just keep building this and building it over days and it just keeps building until you have demeaned the person in your mind, in your heart. That's why the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Make sure your anger is like the straw that blazes and then goes out. It does what it's supposed to do and then it's done. It doesn't smolder and get worse and worse and worse and worse. Never let the first one turn into the second one is basically what that verse is saying. Don't allow an accumulation of grievances against a brother. Murder begins when we let anger cause us to lose respect for the infinite worth of somebody. How many have read Uncle Tom's Cabin? Okay. The reason why slave, the, the, the incident I remember on there is they, Uncle Tom was on the boat and there was a mother that had a baby lying on the bench of the boat and she needed to go to the restroom or something and she got up and left the baby lying there and the slave owner, one of the slave owners, I guess maybe her own owner, took the baby and took it and stole it away. And when she came back, the baby wasn't there, and she jumped overboard and committed suicide. And then somebody asked him about it, and he said, well, he said, uh, these slaves are like cows. Uh, they, they, they mourn for a couple of days, and then they forget all about it. You see what that says? He did not think that black people were human. He thought they were animals. And that's what they had to do to do what they did to the blacks. They had to, do, they had to make up their minds that these people were not really humans and they could be treated like cattle because that's what they really were. So, <clears throat> so the first step is when we lose respect and you lose respect by building up resentment against people. Anger begins with brooding resentment because of some hurt feelings, some self-pity, some craving for attention, you name it, it, it you know, that's how it begins. The early signs of it are sulking and pouting and withdrawal. Mm, I'll just crawl off in my corner, you know, because of the way I'm feeling about what you did to me. And that's why the song that we sang the other night, I Want a Principle Within, to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. Stop it before it goes any further than that. Now you say, well, that's a pretty big order. Does God ask us to do anything we can't do by his grace? Does God give us impossible commands? If he says you can quench it, if you can deal with it in those early stages, then it's possible that we can. Somebody has said every command that God gives us has a promise. If he commanded it, the promise is he'll enable us. (laughs) It's possible to do what God tells us. So if God tells us we can quench anger before it goes any further than that early stage, where perhaps we needed to do something, maybe to discipline a child, get that process started or something, 
And then that should be it. If he says that's how we should deal with anger, then it's possible to do that. Remember my favorite verse in the New Testament. God is able to make all grace abound, no limits, towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work, including quenching anger in its early stages. (laughs) All right. This is possible by God's grace. He does not ask us to do things that are impossible. All right? And we should not be making any excuses. That without a cause is an excuse, as far as I'm concerned. That's why it's in there. Somebody wanted to put an excuse in there. So he says the judgment, if you you don't stop it at that point, uh, the judgment will be that you will be in danger of the you'll be in danger of the judgment, which would have been the local authorities, the people in the immediate community where you are. That's the only people at that point probably would know it. They, they would begin to pass judgment on what you did. They wouldn't be impressed by what you did. All right? So, <clears throat> don't let anger get the upper hand. Quench it in those early stages. And, I'm, and, and I'm, I have to remind myself, if Jesus said we're to do that, then we can do that. All right? We, it can be done. Abraham Lincoln was an interesting person in this regard. Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, was angered by an army officer who accused him of favoritism. Stanton complained to Lincoln, who suggested that he write the officer a letter. Stanton did, and showed the viciously worded letter to the president. I mean, he really fried him with the letter. Then Lincoln said, what are you going to do with it? Surprised, Stanton said, well, of course, I'm going to send it. Lincoln shook his head. You don't want to send that letter. Put it in the stove. That's what I do when I have written a letter while I'm angry. It's a good letter. You've had a good time writing it, and now you feel better. Now burn it and write another one. (laughs) That's what Jesus is talking about. Take definite, practical action to bring your anger. If you need to vent it somewhere, be sure you go vent it somewhere where you're not going to hurt anybody. Go out in the barn and yell to the pigeons or something, or write the letter or whatever. Vent it. Get it out of your system and have it done. All right? Jesus calls us to deliberately choose a positive Response to this. Many years ago, a senior executive of Standard Oil Company made a wrong decision that cost the company $2 million. Rockefeller was running the firm. And on the day the news leaked out, most of the executives of the company were finding various ingenious ways of avoiding Mr. Rockefeller, lest his wrath descend upon them. There was one exception, however. It was Edward Bedford a partner in the company who had to meet that day with Rockefeller, even though he was prepared to listen to a long, angry harangue against the man who had made the error. When he entered the office, the powerful head of the gigantic Standard Oil Empire was bent over his desk busily writing with a pencil on a pad of paper. Bedford stood silently, not wishing to interrupt. After a few minutes, Rockefeller looked up. Oh, it's you, Bedford, he said calmly. 
I suppose you've heard about the loss. Bedford said that he had. I've been thinking it over, Rockefeller said. And before I ask the man to come in to discuss the matter, I've been making some notes. Bedford later told the story this way. Across the top of the page was written, points in favor of Mr. So-and-so. There followed a long list of the man's virtues, including a brief description of how he had helped the company make a right decision on three separate occasions that had earned many times the cost of the recent error. There are practical ways to deal with anger, if you want to, if you believe Jesus can help you do it, all right? Well, if you don't stop there, if you don't do what these wise men did, you go to the next step, which is contempt. Anger now turns to contempt. Now it, begins, it, it becomes expressed. Before, it was just in you smoldering. You were letting it smolder. You were building up your case. You were looking at all the faults and suspicions and so on, and you were just building this case. And then it comes out in contempt. They say there is no translation for the word raka. Is that true? They say that if you say it in the Hebrew, it sounds something like this. Raka. And then you spit. (laughs) All right. This is a term to characterize the person. In other words, you begin to characterize the person. You begin to put him down. You begin to demean the person. Okay? You start to talk about him. He's a brainless idiot. He's a nerd. He's a doofus. He's whatever. You know how people talk about people that they have contempt for. The story is told of an author of a tract called Come to Jesus. And he had an enemy that he didn't like, and he wrote a very insulting letter to the enemy. And he took it to a friend and said, read this and tell me what you think. And the friend said, well, do you have a title for this uh, letter that you're going to write? No. Well, I suggest that you give it this title. Go to hell by the author of Come to Jesus. <laughs> this is the opposite of Philippians 2. I want to turn there for just a little bit. What's, what's, what's happening? Oh, we have some time here. Philippians chapter 2. Now, I, I think this, the reason why I chose this one, I can't deal all with, with all the Sermon on the Mount, but we're all here. We all have to deal with this. And I, I just, the encouragement tonight is that we can. We can deal with it. God has given us sufficient grace, uh, whether uh, um, why can't I say your name? Brother Good. Mel. No, not Mel. Nathan. Oh, Nathan. Nathan. <laughs> you call that a senior moment. <laughs> Don't be angry with me, Brother Nathan. <laughs> all right. We talked about grace last night. Maybe it's just a good reminder for all of us. The best definition for the word grace is Ephesians 1 3. The word grace is not in that, that verse. But it says, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm, or the heavenly places, as King James says it. So, picture. The heavenly realm, that's where God is. And all the blessings there are unlimited love, unlimited forgiveness, unlimited power, unlimited, you name it, unlimited everything in that heavenly realm. And all of those are made available to us through Christ. 
And I know that because of my verse. God is able to make all grace, everything that's here, available to you. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound into every good work. We can, if you folks go out here tonight and obey what we're talking about, we can just banish anger from everybody here, or the results of it, okay? <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each esteem other better than themselves. Now, I told you that in order for you to begin expressing anger towards somebody and contempt, you have to put them down below you. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I will give you the grace to put everybody up here, not down there. Okay? And I'm going to show you that Jesus himself did it. And so I'm not going to read this, but what he pictures is here Jesus, he's as high as you can get. He's God. And before he even comes to this earth, he makes the decision that he doesn't have to be God. He doesn't have to be, he doesn't have to have that position. Of course, he was always divine, even when he came here. But he doesn't have to have that position. He will put himself under his father so that in John chapter 4 through 10, every one of those chapters says something like this. I only do what the Father tells me. I only say what he tells me. I always do his will. In other words, he put himself under his Father. He became a servant of his Father. And then he came to this earth. And that was a real come down. I don't even, I can't even imagine God becoming a human. Maybe you could imagine uh, uh, you becoming an ant or something. You know, this was, this was a huge dissension. And then he, be, he, uh, becomes obedient unto death. And that would have been one thing if it would have been a triumphant death, a hero with trumpets blaring. But no, no, no. It was the most ignominious death that man could devise. It was the death of the cross. So it was the whole way from the top, the whole way to the bottom. And he did it voluntarily, okay? He didn't have to do that. He did it voluntarily. I said to Dilhazi one time, uh, he was in a situation where he was terribly embarrassed. I said, Dale, God gives grace to the humble. He said, no, he doesn't give grace to the humiliated. He only gives grace to the people who do it voluntarily. <laughs> so anyway, Jesus did it voluntarily. He put himself at the bottom. He esteemed us not beneath him. Well, we'll say it that way, Okay. Christ chose to go to the bottom, and, and, and the reason why you can do what we're talking about tonight is because it says, therefore, because of that, God exalted him. There's a therefore in there. You can afford, because there's a promise. Did you ever think about this? He that humbleth himself, say, that's a promise. That is a promise. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. And of course, the other one is true too. He that exalts himself shall be abased. I'd have wished I could have gone to Washington to tell President Trump that. Uh, and what happened is no surprise because that's what the verse says. I never heard of such a person that bragged about himself like that man did. And I kept telling my family, whoo, it's going to be a huge come down. Those are promises. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. So you can afford to, you can afford to do what we're saying tonight. Because there's a promise. All right? Jesus was a great believer in man. He did not demean us. He did not put us down. The Bible says he didn't come to condemn the world. He could have. 
And we have no right to do it. When it says judge not that it be, be not judged, it means con don't condemn. And I told you the other night that the word condemn has D-E-M-N, put an A in there, and that's what it means. It means to damn people, to put people down, to, to just, yeah, right. The three words on Jesus' lips were the least, the last, and the lost. But contempt is active hatred. Call it what it is. When you call up somebody and you demean somebody on the telephone, that is active hatred. That's what it is. When you demean somebody, that's active hatred. Booker T. Washington said, I will not allow any man to drag me so low as to make me hate him. I won't allow anybody to let, make me do that. Slavery had taught him the tragedy of hate and prejudice. All right? Now it says, if, if you let it go to that extent, you will, what does he say here? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not back in Matthew. Shall be in danger of the council. Okay? That's the Sanhedrin. That's not just the community council and the bad opinion of your neighbors. You're, you're going to get into legal trouble. You're, you're headed for a legal problem. All right? And not only that, but the next step is insult. That's to destroy him. Not just to put him down, but to completely destroy his reputation, to completely neuter him as a person, to completely get rid of him, not by killing his body, but by killing his reputation and everything about him. Take his name and reputation from him. Put him down. He's worthless. You know, I think about that every time I meet somebody who will not greet me. I say, brother, you're not judging me. You're judging yourself. Because the Bible says if you do this to a brother, you're in serious danger. You know what it says next. And so I used to be hurt pretty badly when people did that. But I honestly can tell you that when somebody does not greet me, I actually feel pity for them. I feel compassion. They are doing so. And I, I say in my heart, like Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because I think most of them don't realize the seriousness of what they're doing. But you don't do that. You don't do that to a brother. Well, what they're saying is I'm not a brother. That's quite a judgment, Brother Milo. <laughs> That's quite a judgment. And he says, if you do that, you're in danger of hellfire. Yeah, I think he was referring to the Valley of Gehenna. That's the valley where Ahaz burned his children. It's the valley that Josiah declared was accursed. A filthy place where refuse was always burning, a symbol of final destruction. No punishment is too severe for the reputation destroyers, is what he's saying. No punishment is too severe for the person who destroys another man's reputation or another man's person. All right. So, quickly, seek accommodation. Take the offensive. Do something. Clear up the offenses as soon as you can. Don't even put religious duties first. This was, this was actually a Hebrew command, that if you brought a temp, a, a, an offering to the temple and you had something against somebody and people knew it, they would not let you offer the sacrifice till you had gone and made it right. Okay? You take the initiative. Even if you were not the cause, it says if you know a brother has ought against you, it doesn't say you did something, had something against him. He had something against you. Take the initiative immediately. Because the barrier between you and a brother is a barrier between you and God. I think you all have probably seen this, but 
Anabaptists had a statement. No man can come to God unless he brings his brother with him. You see, a lot of people have the idea that we all come to God individually. The Anabaptists did not believe that. They said, look, we all come to God together. And so they really took this seriously. If you had something uh, when you were praying, it didn't mean you had to go get all the brothers to pray with you, but what it did mean is they were all there. And if you happen to think of some brother that, did, uh, that there was a problem between you and that brother, you couldn't come to God until that was resolved because we all come to God as a body. That was their concept, okay? Forgive, to be forgiven, we find in the Lord's Prayer. You know, you ha- there's, there's just beautiful stories of, of this. Uh, I read a story one time about two farmers that farmed side by side. And I don't know what happened, but they, they, they became enemies. And uh, uh, one day, uh, uh, a workman came to the one farmer, and he had his tools, and he said, look, I'm out of work. Would you have something I could do? The farmer said, no. Oh, well, wait a minute. Yes, I do. You see that pile of lumber down there? I'm going to go to town, and when I come back, I would like for you down there in that ravine between our farms, I would like for you to build a, a wall, a wooden wall, 10 feet high between our two farms. So he went to town, and he came back, and there wasn't any wall there. The man had found a bulldozer, and he had leveled off the ravine, and he had built a, I'm sorry, no, he didn't level off the ravine. He built a bridge across it. And when the man came home from town, his neighbor was coming across the bridge and saying, now, aren't you some brother that you built a bridge so we could enjoy each other? He thought the farmer had taken the initiative to forgive. He didn't know it was the the workman that made it happen. And they're just beautiful stories like that. Corey Ten Boom, there was a guard in the camp that she hated because he had been so demeaning and so brutal and so cruel. And then after she, let, after she was released, she was back in Germany one day in a meeting speaking. And after the meeting, he was coming up the aisle with his hands sticking out saying, Corey, will you forgive me? And she said, even as a Christian, ooh, I can't forgive him. And then she thought, well, I can't control my feelings, but I can control my hand. So she said, I started to reach out my hand, and she said, and that's when the miracle happened. She said, I could describe it like electricity going down my arm. And she said, by the time I clasped his hand, I could honestly say, love filled my heart, and I could say, brother, I forgive you. And that tells us something. God waits till we act before he gives us this grace. It says, reckon yourself to be dead unto sin. Go act as if it's true, and then it will come true. You follow what I'm saying? We want to feel the forgiveness before we express it. God says, you express it. In fact, when he says, forgive your enemy, he never says, feel fuzzy feelings toward him. See, we get the idea that we're supposed to love our elders. No, 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 no. He says, love your enemies, pray for them, do good to them. What's the other one? I have it written down, I think, somewhere. Anyway, you're supposed to do something loving, (laughs) whether you feel like it or not. It's an act of faith. I obey Jesus, and then he releases the grace to make it a reality. In fact, that, that includes all of his commands. We move in obedience, and then he's responsible to make it real. Okay? But we wait. We wait till we feel like it. We wait till we 
are ready. No, no, no. Do it no matter how you feel because Jesus said it. Okay? And, and, and then he's responsible for the rest. And finally, solicit agreement. Act before the offended party takes the initiative. John Deere Tractor, Tractor Company did that. They kept ahead of the whole game of treating their employees well, and the unions never got into the John Deere factory. Why did the other ones have unions fighting them? Because they had mistreated their workers. They hadn't paid them like they should, and the unions came in and enforced the issue. John Deere did what Jesus said. Agree with your adversary. Make the friendship before, you get it, before, before it happens. Okay? All right, when the offended party goes into action, the opportune moment has, has passed. Anger has escalated to a risky point. And we had a case in our community uh, during the uh, Iraq War, the first one, Desert Storm. That was an Iraqi family that brought their children to a winter Bible school at a church in our community. It wasn't our church. It was another Mennonite church. And one of the boys, as the girl was rounding the corner, the, the feelings were high against Iraq. It was right after the... the uh, Twin Towers, and he's, uh, the boy just said sort of derogatory, like, there goes that Iraqi girl, and she turned on him. And he didn't fight her. He just pushed, took his arm to sort of ward off her, her, her blows that she was going to give him, and she fell to the ground. And so the mother went the next day to try to make this right, and the lady was so unreasonable that it made the sister in the church angry which shouldn't have happened. And so she walked off the property and said, I guess we'll see you in court. And that's exactly what happened. And they were sued. It was amazing what, what came out of that. I talked to the lawyer. He was a friend of mine, the lawyer that took the case against the Mennonites. And he said, John, this had nothing to do with money. This was all about honor. It was all about who was going to win. That's what this is about. That's what happens when we don't take the offensive. So the title of my message was, let's eliminate our enemies. We eliminate them by turning them into friends. <laughs> That's how we eliminate our enemies, okay? Cultivate a loving reverence for all humanity. Enthusiasm for humanity is the heart of the gospel. Enthusiasm and hope for humanity. Chesterton said of St. Francis, listen, this is interesting. The secret of his success was his profound belief in other people. He used to talk to thieves and robbers about their misfortune of not being able to give vent to their desire to be holy. <laughs> he said, I pity you because you want to be holy, but you can't. I'm sorry for you. General Booth, before Queen Elizabeth, when she asked, what can I do for you? He said, your majesty, some people's passion is for money. Some people's passion is for fame. My passion is for men. Jesus had a passion for men. I conclude with a story. A teacher of a religious class came to class one day and fastened a target on the wall. It said, now, I want each of you to draw a picture of your worst enemy. So Sandra drew a picture of her worst enemy. It was the girl who had stolen her boyfriend. And she drew her with freckles, with a hooked nose. I mean, she drew the ugliest picture she could possibly think of. So when they were all done drawing their pictures, 
The professor said, now I want you to come up and pin your picture over the target. And then you can go back and you can throw darts at it. And all this was big stuff. People threw darts till the papers were all torn and it was ripped and it was awful looking. And each person put his enemy up there and threw targets. And they ran out of time and the teacher said, I'm sorry, we don't have time for any more. And Sandra was so disappointed because she didn't get to do that. And then the teacher took down the target and behind the target was a picture of Jesus, all ripped and torn. And Sandra remembered, the king shall answer and say unto them, verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. This is serious. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself tonight. Listen, I, I have the same struggles you have, but I think it'd just be wonderful if every one of us could go out of here tonight and deal with anger in its beginning stages, and do good, and learn to love, and value humanity, even the people who've mistreated us. Let's celebrate humanity. Let's have passion for men. Let's eliminate every enemy by esteeming him better than ourselves. Let's turn to 422 in the hymnal as a concluding hymn. Tomorrow night, I want to speak about <clears throat> the ideal resistance, the kingdom resistance. Sunday morning, I want to talk about the kingdom economics. And the second message will be the kingdom prayer. That will be the conclusion, a message on the Lord's Prayer. 422. <clears throat> this is the tune to my God and I walk through the fields together, so you'll all know the tune. On the second verse, I would like for the altos to sing and the rest of us hum like we used to do that song. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father, I thank you tonight that you give us grace. Lord, we know we cannot do this ourselves. You, in fact, you said, without me, you can do nothing. And certainly we can't deal with anger on our own. And I just pray, Lord, that this message would just burn in our hearts so that every person would go out from this place learning this wonderful principle, this wonderful virtue, and will be known as people who do good and pray for people who wrong them and do not allow their anger to grow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.